Welcome to episode 383 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We're also Christians putting on Christ and his armor. I just came like right in hot (laughs) on this episode. I just got so excited because on this one, we're going to be talking about the sword of the spirit, which is, I think we can be honest as we go through the armor. If you're acquainted with it in any way, you've heard us talk about the shoes and the helmets, and you might just be saying, let's get to that sword. Where's the, where's like the overt weapon? And it's here. Paul didn't forget about it. He articulates it. So we're going to talk about that. And I just got excited thinking about, here we are, talking about the sword of the spirit. But before we do that, of course, it's time for affirmations and denials. It just so happened that you and I completely offset each other. It was like consummate harmony, this bringing together of, I had denial, but found myself strangely without some kind of affirmation. And you found yourself with affirmation without a denial. And so here we are. And we thought we're going to do like a joint. It's just going to come together. It's the brotherhood represented in a complete unification of one half of each. So because it's like one has the one and one has the other, where do you want to start? I can start with my, uh, my affirmation. Let's do it. Or our affirmation, I guess. It's our affirmation. It's, I don't it's everybody's, it everybody's affirmation. We're you all affirming this together. Um, I'm affirming Calvin's commentary. So I had the opportunity to preach uh, this morning on the Lord's Day, um, filling in the pulpit for my pastor. Um, And I always make use of Calvin's commentaries. Um, They're available free online uh, in rather clunky formats, but they're also available not free, uh, but worth the money in uh, Logos Bible software. So we're trying to sort of bring this up a little bit more because we, we were, we were pretty uh, invested in, in promoting Logos for a while. We kind of fell off, but it's such a great tool uh, to use for this kind of stuff. And I use Calvin's commentaries any, basically every time I'm looking at a passage, anytime that I'm going to look at a passage and try to understand what it means, I pull up Calvin's commentaries. And what's really cool about uh, Logos, and I think, I think this might be new in version 10, but it might not, is... So one of the struggles with Calvin's commentaries, right, is that each entry in the commentary series is its own resource in Logos. So it used to be that it was hard to like synchronize it across um, across the Bible. Now, if you synchronize the two panels, it'll actually switch between Calvin's commentaries to match whichever book of the Bible you're looking at. So it treats it like one big commentary, which is great. And if you go to reformbrotherhood.com slash Logos, it'll bring you to our uh, Logos Bible software affiliate page on the Logos website. And right now you can actually get 10% off your purchase of any base package, um, which is a pretty big discount for for these packages. Um, And if you've ever been on the fence about this, I think that Logos has been one of those tools that has really kind of changed how I do my Bible study. So it used to be like, I would just sit down and I would just read the Bible. And it was almost, it was very performative, very perfunctory. I really just wanted to say the word perfunctory, Um, but it was very performative. And I was just kind of getting through the text because I didn't feel like I wanted to take time to dig into things that I didn't understand or that I wanted to understand more. 
because it would involve me like having to get another book off my shelf or look something up line. And I felt like it was taking me out of the text, which was kind of defeating the purpose. But with Logos, you can set up all sorts of cool layouts. So I have like a morning reading layout, which has my my Bible that I'm reading, the reading plan that I'm working on, and then it has a panel with, in my case, Calvin's commentaries. So as I'm reading through and scrolling through, it's automatically synchronizing Calvin's commentaries to the place in the Bible that I'm reading. So if I read something and I'm like, I'm not really sure what that means, or I would like to know more about that, I don't have to do anything except look slightly to the right on my computer screen and read what Calvin has to say about it. You could do the same thing. You could pick Matthew Henry's commentary if you wanted to do that, or if you had a different commentary set that you wanted to have synchronized. Um, I think you could set up the, like, for example, I have the Reformation Study Bible Notes I could set that up as my default study Bible and it would automatically synchronize to that. Or if you purchase the ESV study Bible notes or something like that, you can can set it up that way. So if you've ever thought about purchasing Logos and you've been uh, unsure and maybe the cost has been a barrier, I think a 10% uh, discount is a pretty generous discount. And if you do purchase through that affiliate link, you do support the show. Um, we get a little bit of a kickback in the form of some Logos bucks and it allows us to expand our own library, which then helps us to reinvest into the show. But Calvin, I mean, Calvin's commentaries are just so like warm and they're so... They're so approachable. Calvin has this reputation of being like this high intellect, and he certainly was. But his commentaries are so approachable and so easy to understand. Um, some things are a little bit dated, and there sometimes is a little bit of an overfocus on the controversy between you know Rome and, and the Protestants at the time, which is understandable. It's a historical artifact. So you're going to get like more comments explaining the difference between uh, between Calvin's view and, you know, this Roman Catholic bishop or that Roman Catholic cardinal. Um, some of that stuff's not super useful when you're preparing for Bible study. It certainly is interesting. But overall, it's just really straightforward biblical exposition. And, and I think it's just, uh, it's worth your time to work through that alongside your Bible. There's a lot in Calvin that just seems classic, seems always contemporary. And I'm with you. I think at the very least, one of the things you'll appreciate is just the depth and the breadth of his knowledge. So it's oh, he's bringing insights almost to every single verse and at least his turn of phrase and the way in which he unpacks things draws us to worship God in that, like what an ability that he had. And then what a privilege to be able to stand upon the foundation of that ability in our own studies, even if it's just casually and there's nothing wrong with that. So. Yeah. I'm with you. One of the nice things again about Logos is it just makes all this th this stuff like accessible and organized. I actually think like the organization might be the bigger part of that because yeah. to your point, being able to just like jump into a passage and immediately pull it up without having to go to your bookshelf or find the right book or go to a library or try to purchase a particular volume to find the thing that you're looking for, it's all right there. So again, you can just chalk this up in our current and always persistent theme of what a time to be alive where this thing is just available. So I think you're right. If you're looking for a tool and you're saying, you know what, I just want to have more things at my fingertips, better access. And you might be thinking it, it's expensive. And I think that that's fair. It's something worth saving for, something worth budgeting for, because yeah. it will be the kind of thing that continues, you will continue to grow with it. And it will provide you all kinds of resources that the more that I have it in front of me, the more reasons I find to use it, if that makes sense. So it does continue to kind of blossom and grow. Yeah. Ironically, Calvin doesn't actually comment on the part of the passage that we're talking about tonight. So we didn't get a lot of help from him uh, preparing for this evening. But um, 
it really is a worthwhile resource. And all of the major resources that you would go to are available in Logos. And I actually think um, I actually think they have the ability to do a payment plan as well. If you yes. want to make a purchase, um, I think they have the ability to do that. And I don't think they charge interest. So it's not like you're putting it on a credit card. I think they just set it up as a payment plan for you to be able to spread those payments out a little bit, which is great for like a pastor who gets like a monthly book budget and wants to dedicate that to this. That way he's not having to try to like beg his church to give all of the uh, money up front or something like that. Um, and even if you just, you know, you can get the software for free. Um, and even if you just purchase a Bible and a commentary, um, you can get those pretty cheap, especially things like Matthew Henry. Those are pretty reasonably available. And they also give you free books and discounted books every month. So you can build your library without spending a ton of money, even if you don't purchase a base package. So check it out. Again, you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash Logos, um, and they have a discount code this month for 10% off a Logos 10 purchase. Um, I think Logos 10 is phenomenal. Everything they've done in it is... Right is really, really on point. They've made some behind the scene changes that make it much more powerful, much more efficient. So it's not draining your, your memory as bad. Um, visually, it's much more appealing and much more consistent with kind of modern design structures. So check it out. And, and you don't have to have Logos to use Calvin's commentaries or Matthew Henry for that matter. You can go to ccel.org and they've got yes. free copies of that. Um, they're not searchable the same way that Calvin's commentaries are. They're, they're not as accessible and not as um, indexed as you would have it if you were in Logos, but you can still make pretty good use of them. Um, even if you were to purchase like the whole commentary set, sometimes you can get those pretty cheap if you find a good deal on them. Um, I think uh, Hendrickson republished them a few years ago. So you can get them pretty, uh, pretty reasonably, but it's worth, it's worth having in your library, even though there are some dated things, there are some things that are not quite as pertinent now because he was writing into a particular historic context that's very different than our own. But even those, um, you can see how he's reflecting on and applying the scriptures and even just thinking about how he does that is worthwhile. And the last thing I'll say too about his commentaries is a lot of people, um, I think a lot of our audience probably has some exposure to Calvin's Institutes. Um, you know, this is a predominantly a systematic theology based podcast, not a not a exegetical biblical studies based podcast. Um, those disciplines are both equally valid, and we just land on one side rather than the other more often than not. But Calvin never intended the Institutes to be a standalone document. Um, he basically said you should read Institutes in one hand to understand how he systematizes the Bible. But if you want to understand any particular passage that Cal Calvin's view, you have to go to his commentaries. Um, so it's always good for us to have both of those documents in front of us if we're really trying to understand the reform perspective as it's come to us from Calvin, right? There's developments after Calvin, so it's not like he's the end-all be-all of reform theology, but he is a tried-and-true commentary, a commentator, and most of our exegetical and theological heritage in the reform tradition traces itself back through Calvin in one form or another. So it's worth adding to your library. It's worth spending the time uh, and a little bit of a heavy lift in some cases, but it's worth the time and the energy to, to avail yourself of those resources. Yeah, I totally agree. It's certainly something worth exploring, whether whatever format you want to provide it to yourself in, whether that is through Logos, which again, you might be surprised to find that's more affordable and approachable than you once or at first considered. And then, like you said, the beauty of this is, again, what it's not to be alive, where you can go out to the internet and find all this stuff and just pull it down for your reading pleasure. It is an amazing time to be alive.
It is. So Jesse, what are we denying tonight? So I didn't anticipate this would be a joint denial. I don't have any like thought that you're going to disagree with me on this, but it is a little bit strangely heavy and totally out of left field. So I have this growing hypothesis. It's certainly not mine, but I think the older I get, the more I realize how true this is. And the hypothesis is that really great music comes from experiencing great pain and suffering. And I think what's interesting about that is that is kind of the purview and the domain of the Christian, which is why there's so many great hymns, because we understand something of what it means to suffer under the weight of our sin, or whether you're Fanny Crosby or Horatio Spafford mourning the loss of your most of your family. That's what compels us to be able to write these amazing lyrics that seem to be eternally contemporary, that they just resonate across time and cultures. And so we find within them some identity of ourselves. And so the denial is how the unchristian must manage this kind of pain and how it often comes out in music. Maybe perhaps it comes out predominantly in music. That music betrays us and that I think there's so many great pieces of music where we see, I don't want to say like not necessarily Christian themes, unless by Christian, I mean what we find in Ecclesiastes, that there is great suffering in all the world that God has made his people to see hard things, but absent God himself, there is no hope. And so what we find is somebody who comes to actual terms with that, that wants to stand up against that, to actually measure and manage that, to process it, is going to have some kind of massive outpour, outcry. And oftentimes that outcry is in the form of music. And so if you're of like a certain age, maybe maybe like our age, though I'm older than you, people might remember the band Linkin Park, which was kind of like a, I guess just a rock band. And I came across a piece of music. I, I enjoy Linkin Park's music. Uh, I think it's very interesting. But I came a piece of, uh, of, across a piece of music that I totally forgotten about. The piece is called What I've Done. And um, let me just read like first couple set series of the lyrics here because I, I think I heard this recently, thought about who was singing it, and I'll say something about that in just a moment. And then really became, I'll be honest, like touched and kind of compelled by these lyrics. So the lyrics go something like this. This is just the first verse into the course. In this farewell, there's no blood, there's no alibi, because I've drawn regret from a truth in a thousand lives. So let mercy come and wash away what I've done. I'll face myself to cross out what I've become, erase myself, and let go of what I've done. Now, if you're familiar with the front man of that band, it was a, a guy named Chester Bennington who himself struggled with all kinds of depression and uh, drug abuse. And I guess in 2017, which seems like not long ago, but it is now, that uh, he died at his own hand and his death was ruled suicide by hanging. And I think that when I go back and I watch some of like his own interviews about his life, about what he speaks about his music and about the lyrics that he was writing, and then I just heard this song recently. Again, it came back into my playlist. And I myself, again, was like overwhelmed with the helplessness that occurs outside of Christ, that these are like real quantities. And that so much of our music is like, it, it's always born from pain, but there is either the Christian ethic and the response where that pain and all of its suffering comes under consummate understanding through Christ who bears it up with us and for us. And again, it's like the fourth man in the fire. And so redeems us from that pain, either now or in the life to come. And then there is everything else, which is the same, 
except that there is no deliverance. And of course, like, I'm not saying this is a Christian song. I'm certainly not saying anything about Chester, about his convictions, about what he was going through. But what is clear that is if what we receive from the teacher in Ecclesiastes is true, then what Chester is saying here is also absolutely true. Yeah. And I was just kind of overwhelmed in this moment of the pain, maybe perhaps that he was experiencing. And if they want to pen this, write this down and somehow put this on an album, it seems to be a true expression for him. And at least in hindsight, and I think in many ways it's a true expression for all of us, this crying out for, again, I don't know what his context was, but crying out for mercy for almost in some ways, like a blood sacrifice, a redemption, a pardoning, a restoration, a newness of life so that he could erase both what he has done and who he had become. And really, isn't that the place that all of us from time to time, maybe every day, find ourselves? That what we need maybe is not to be completely torn apart or torn asunder in our being, but to have our being reestablished in the best of all possible ways, so that what we have become is not who we are. And what we have done will not be the kind of thing that tarnishes what we might be. And we find, of course, all of that in Christ. So I'm denying against this hopelessness and loved ones, like there's the gospel message, of course, like is this missionary focused, missional kind of volitional action that we ought to take up because it is our call to bring forward in the world. It's also like this statement of emergency that like the people around us are hurting and suffering. And even if they look fine on the outside, these kinds of battles are exactly the kind of thing that everybody is fighting. And the question I think is not whether or not there's a battle in which your life that you're trying to engage, but who is with you and on your side in the midst of that great struggle so that when you are exhausted and feel that the enemy is at hand, that your very life might be taken from you, who is going to be there to defend you? And the bottom line is most people have no one to defend them. There's no one to come to the rescue. And we find cheap substitutes to try to bring us through by day after day so that we might just somehow survive hoping against hope that the next day will be the best. And then for some, that day comes, honestly, where they say, there is nothing left for me and it would be better for me to take my own life. So I just mourn all this loss and I mourn the way that the devil, um, yeah, we have a real enemy, right? Yeah. And the good, the good news is that we have the good news. So without belaboring the point, it's not, it's not like the cliche denial against the fall, though that's bad. It's really a denial against the fact that there are so many in this world who have no hope and we ought to be about the mission of Christ because it's, it's great to save uh, somebody eternally, right? Like I'm not, I, this gets sound so weird. I'm not throwing that away. Also, can we not belittle the fact that it's great to save somebody now? Yeah. Like for whom Christ will come and intercede and bring freedom and break chains and destroy bondage and bring about like a complete lightness. I think, I, I think that um, if we can bring that message forward to somebody who needs it today, uh, then we ought to be brave and courageous and do that. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I was actually a pretty big fan of Lincoln Park kind of during the height of their popularity. Um, I was in a sort of a dark place myself. I mean, I was a Christian and so I was coming at it from a different place, but I was in sort of a dark place and their music and particularly their lyrics um, do really sort of like touch a part of the human experience that 
is pretty unique, I think. I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot of bands that have um, thoughtful and somewhat deep lyrics, but Linkin Park really, and as I understand it right, Chester wrote most of the the lyrics yes. for the band, um, even yes. though there was other people in it. He was the, the primary um, lyricist for the group. Um, you know, I think I think there's um, there's a place for psychotherapy, right? I'm not one of those people who, who is opposed to, uh, counseling and psychotherapy, um, on principle. There are certainly bad psychotherapists out there and there's bad psychotherapy treatment out there. But the, the idea that, um, the, the mind and the brain particularly, but the mind and how it is related to the brain is a part of the human experience and is, right subject to common grace insights and common grace uh, treatment, I guess you might want to call it. I, I affirm that. I'm, I'm on board with that. But at the end of the day, those things can never be the final answer to the question of, of how do we resolve this experience that we all have, this, this despair that we all face. And I think um, those who are apart from Christ this episode is like suddenly super deep and, and way deeper than I expected it to be. But those, what we do. those who are apart from Christ are still image bearers who will understand and will be crushed under the burden yes. of the law, whether they've ever heard it directly preached to them, right? The law is written on their heart. And so just like you're saying, Chester's lyrics in that song, um, they they point to the fact that mercy is needed, that we've done wrong things, that we are in our essence, we are wrong. We are like there's a wrongness to our nature that we cannot overcome, we cannot correct. And the answer to that, the only answer to that is the gospel. And the only result apart from the gospel is despair. And even though most people don't take it to the uh, the conclusion that Chester did and that many people do, most people don't go there, but that's, that's the despair that, that results. And so I'm totally with you. Like we can make a, we can make a sizable concrete difference. Um, this might be a little controversial, but I even put it this way, even just being a source of hope and a source of positivity apart from the explicit proclamation of the gospel. Even that is something Christians offer to the world that is different than the sort of fake false hope that uh, non-Christians can offer. So where a non-Christian may come into a situation where someone is despairing and and say something like, don't worry, it's going to be okay, don't worry, it's going to get better, those are hollow, empty promises. They are always necessarily hollow, empty promises because it may not get better and it isn't going to be okay. But a Christian can come to a situation and say, I have the solution to what you need. That there is a better day coming if only you will repent and trust in Christ. Right? So we we can bring that to the situation. And then there may be a place for psychotherapy. There may be a place for treat like medical treatment and medication that addresses real physiological issues that go on in the brains of people who have clinical depression, right? We, we're, we don't need to get into that. We are a top 50 healthcare podcast, uh, exactly. but we're not going to pretend to be doctors. But there is, a real, there is a real physiological condition called depression. And sometimes that requires actual medical treatment, just like diabetes or Graves' disease or any other 
physical condition. But those, those kinds of things can never be the final solution to the problem because the final solution to the problem has to address both body, soul, and spirit and mind. It has to address the person holistically. And those kinds of things like psychotherapy and medical treatment, they just can't address that. So I'm with you. I, 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 uh, maybe I should go back and listen to some more Linkin Park. It's been a long time since I've listened to that. But it's funny because music is one of those things that can just bring you back to a, like a moment in your life, like instantly. Right. And the second you started, you started talking about that song, I was like immediately brought back to the time in my life where honestly, um, maybe this isn't a great thing to say, but honestly, like Lincoln Park was a source of comfort and sort of almost hope for me because it was like in that time in my life, I very much felt alone. Like nobody understood the difficulties and the challenges I was facing. And then all of a sudden it was like, this guy seems to get it. This guy seems to understand what real darkness feels like. And of course, like the spirit brought me back into the light of the gospel. And there was a whole, there's a whole story behind that. But I think this is a, this is a denial that we need to maybe like sit in for a minute because it is pretty heavy and it's pretty significant. Yeah. I, I appreciate what you said, because I think that maybe that's what made this band compelling in many ways. You know, sometimes, and I think people are with me on this, or maybe you're not, I have no idea just throw your phones into the water if, if this is not how you feel. But sometimes you listen to a band and it could be like, you know, with their lyrics, it's like, it's cool to be edgy or it's cool to kind of take this dark tone. But I, I would say that Linkin Park is one of those bands where when you hear their lyrics, there's something about the authenticity about what they're speaking about. It doesn't seem manufactured. It's not like corporatized. Like this is a lot of feeling. And to your point, I think the reason why we identify it, and I think even the reason why there might be some hope in you identifying it or me identifying with it is because we recognize that it's ecclesiastical. Right. And so there's something there that we just say, well, yeah, this is true. We can't get away from this truth. What we can do is understand how Jesus is the one that purifies and embraces this truth for us on our behalf. And again, just brings us redemption and allows us to triumph over it and through it. But only through him, it remains whether or not he is the one that brings us victory or not by his saving us. And so I think that for many, they, they heard this stuff and they just said, yes, yeah. like, and it's both like the, again, this goes back to my hypothesis that like you, this is why I think I'm not a very excellent songwriter by God's grace in strange ways that because you have to have experienced this kind of great hurt, this kind of great longing. And so the great, you know, hymnists understood this. And when they pour out themselves onto asking that God would redeem them or restore them, or they celebrate his great majesty or his salvation in their life, that true joy of salvation, or in the way that pick any Psalm that David writes, it's somebody who's experienced, understood great and profound pain. And that doesn't mean that you're not saved from it. It doesn't mean that like you haven't been redeemed from it, but that you actually walked through it. And so Chester seemingly was that kind of man who had walked through that kind of pain. And that song I think was written like 10 years before he took his own life. Yeah. So there's a lot there. And to your point, last thing I'll say is, yes, I, we ought to be the kind of people that will ask for help when we need it. And that is both like psychological and physiological and physical. Go ask for all the help. Yeah. And that means we also cry out to God and ask that he would help us, that he would restore us, that he would purify our minds and consolidate our hearts and, again, break the chains in our lives. What I find so interesting about this particular piece of music, though, is that I, I'm sure it is surrounded 
by perhaps all kinds of depression, perhaps the no pun intended hangover of all kinds of drug abuse. I don't know because I don't know what kind of state he was when he wrote this. What I just find so condemning in a way is the language that's embedded within yeah. it. And so there, like you said, there is this sense that we are not who we ought to be, that we wish that we were different. It's just interesting that he's asking for mercy here. It's, it's not even about, you know, there's lots of songs written about, you know, kind of faux or feigning apologies for like, I wish I was somebody different. None of that is here. It's this recognition that there's something profoundly wrong. And what he needs is mercy is like a transcendent force. And so it's asking for something from the outside to essentially say that you will be absolved from the very part of you that you wish didn't exist. And it's better to have that. Well, let me say it this way. It's great to have that part absolved. It's better if there's one who can take that and transform right. that part. Yeah. And yeah, that is the gospel message. So I don't know, perhaps, you know, one of my great hopes would be that Chester was preached the gospel and that he received it even in the midst of the, the horrible outcome of his own tragic life. I have no idea. I think what his music points us to, of course, is Christ. Good music. I, I'm just going to say this out. Like, I think it always nebbly points to some kind of suffering. I suppose like, even if you're Taylor Swift and it's about a breakup, maybe there's something in there that really it, the progenitor of that was some kind of, of suffering. And I think even in like when we, we have these great new words of praise, the praise is like juxtaposed against this darkness that is like the world well, where we have a redeemer or yeah. I can look up to the hills where my help comes from. And so then I sing again about the one who has saved me. And so I think even these songs of great joy and triumph are because of like redemption. And again, about who God is, which is also a reflection of who we are not. And we recognize again, like our own contingency and our own proneness to, to, you know, go astray and uh, yeah, you got to stop me because I'm going to quote like 6,000 hymns if we just keep going. <laughs> well, this so, is the podcast now, Jesse. It, it is. It is the podcast. I mean, and this is again, not honestly, I didn't intend for it to be this way. Of course, we never, well, you are very uh, thoughtful in all your planning, Tony, which I appreciate. And of course, all the listeners do by extension, they don't know it because you're often guiding us in our topics and discussion. But uh, I didn't intend for uh, this connection to really be made, but of course it is wholeheartedly natural. And that is, we're talking about this armor, the armor that yeah. equips the Christian, the armor that gives the Christian hope, the armor that is in fact putting on Christ. And we've, I think, been really outspoken so far that all these essential pieces, and they're all essential in their own way, otherwise Paul would just mention one, is that Christ is being manifest in our daily living. We're getting salty and we're becoming light. And I think Paul wants to be very particular about drawing out these different parts of God's character by associating them directly with this armor. And as we start that conversation, I just want to remind everybody that really, though we go to like Ephesians 6, where Paul lists all these things, and that's where we've just been chilling, that really like the precursor to this is the Old Testament in Isaiah 59. And we've already talked about this briefly, but as a setup for this, let me read a couple of verses from that chapter that really, I think, gives us the proper context. Uh, this is beginning in like the latter part of verse 15 of chapter 59 in Isaiah. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man, and he was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him. 
and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing. And he wrapped himself with a zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the coastlands he will make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. A redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. So, you know, I like this as a setup because we always look at Ephesians 6 as this is the armor God puts on us. But it's almost as if God is like, yo, one more reminder. This is my armor. I put it on first. And though God doesn't need this, of course, so Christ himself is clothed with all his armor. Like he doesn't need this to make victorious battle. But he, in some ways, like fuses his essential character yeah. to these pieces of armor. And then says, as your my children, as equipped soldiers, as good and fellow equipped workers, you get all of this equipment too. It just comes like part of the package. And as we come to this idea of the sword of the spirit, which of course is identified with one of the persons in the Trinity, I think it's all the more important that that's where we start, that this is all of this is being fused and connected with God himself and with his very character. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things about the sword of the spirit that I think is, um, important for us to remember is although we've we've kind of joked a little bit about how like we tend to sort of take these individual pieces atomistically and we we overemphasize like the analogy uh to be like well this piece specifically means this thing and this piece specifically means this thing and one of the things one of the notes we've landed on repeatedly so far is Really, these are all things that are talking about the same thing, right? It's putting on Christ. But the sword of the Spirit has a, a sort of a different character. Um, one, because it is specifically associated with the Spirit, which the other the other elements are associated with the Spirit in that they are associated with God, right? So everything we associate with God, um, whether we're talking about God the Father specifically or we're talking about God kind of broadly conceptually in, in terms of like, the divine nature or the the Trinity as a whole. Um, this piece is a little different because although the rest is the armor of God, this is specifically the sword of the spirit. And so it, it's, it's unique among the pieces of armor that we're talking about, but it's also unique in that a sword is not really armor. And so we talked about in the, the opening kind of know, prolegomena of this series really what we're commanded to do is take up all of the equipment that's necessary for the task. Right. So although this is not armor, it's still part of the equipment that is part of the soldier's gear. But it's worth noting that although some of the other armor may have offensive um, implications, right? We talked about how like the shield that we, we, we take up is not just like a defensive thing, but it also is used... Uh, offensively, it's used to gain ground. The sword is the only piece of this armor that we actually go at the enemy with, right? It's not just um, a, a sword that we use to block the attacks of the enemy. It's actually something that we use to overcome and defeat and kill the enemy. And so we're, we're making a transition now, and we're in sort of this inflection point in the passage where we're moving from 
talking about ways that we kind of defend ourselves against the enemy's attack, right? We take up the sword of uh, the spear, the shield of faith to extinguish the flaming darts of the enemy, right? We're now making this sort of flip or we're, we're sort of turning over now to how we get, how we gain ground. We talked about early on that this isn't just about like holding ground. It's also about gaining ground. Well, the sword of the spirit is the offensive tool that we use to capture territory from the devil. And this, it's like, we don't plan this, but we, we could have planned this. This is exactly what we're talking about, right? There is a world out there that is entrenched in darkness. There are people that need to be rescued. And now we are given the tools and the means by which to go out and free the captives. Right. Um, and of course, this is primarily through the gospel, but also the law, right? The law is part of the word of God. And so this whole this whole concept that the sword of the spirit is the word of God, really we need to unpack that and understand that as the word of God is the offensive tool by which we're able to reclaim the territory that was uh, usurped and stolen by the devil, predominantly in the fall. That's a whole different conversation. But there's this kingdom of darkness and the devil is sort of, the God of this age, right? The Bible uses that language. And now we're taking the word of God and we're using that to conquer and take back that territory from the devil. And of course, there's lots that's been written. So much ink has been spilled over the type of sword. And it was most likely, at least in Paul's reference here, like a short sword, which would have been part and parcel of this kind of close hand-to-hand combat. I, I think all that's true and it could be helpful, but I like where you're going with that more predominantly, that in many ways, to me, this is a reminder that the blood of Christ is sufficient to save the sinner. It's also sufficient to save the Christian day after day. Yes. And so like the sword that we have here, this proclamation that the gospel goes forward, that Christ is able to deliver, and that deliverance comes by the Spirit. Again, it's not something as if like we just had enough sword training that we'd be able to take it up on our own, but against directly and discreetly connected with the one who provides the power and really inflicts the damage. That is like those who are the enemies of God fall underneath this sword. Those who are saved by God are rescued by this sword. And we all need that day after day. So sometimes I think it's easy for the Christian to think like, well, this makes sense. And if I'm going to go out and gain, gain new territory for new people and do lots of tent meetings and have altar calls, yeah, of course, it's all fine. But what about all the rest of us? You know, this sword is powerful and effective for every day. The shield of faith is out there blocking these arrows and the sword is helping to separate and devour and to kill our enemies and the sin which so easily entangles us. And so it's nice to know that the Christian doesn't, like to your point, just have to run out there with like a lots of defensive equipment, but like comes with, you know, so this is of course, I presume what leads like somebody like John Redboots Owen to say like, be killing sin or sin will be right. killing you. How can we kill sin? You know, what is it that we expect to kill it with? What is the thing that's going to absolutely bring about its destruction? And we might speak in like these grand ephemeral terms. We use lots of analogical language. But it's nice that we have this sword of the spirit, which is, as you've already said, like we just went, we just buried the lead, the word of God. And what is this word? I mean, is the word made flesh, but it's almost like the words that God delivers to us, which right. is the truth that separates us from this weird like deconstructionism that Satan promulgates in the garden. But it's also the kind of amazing instruction and comfort and word of life 
that helps you manage Monday morning or Wednesday afternoon or any other time. So I'm, I'm with you. Like, I, I just think like when we look at all this armor, God is so good to us. Like you wouldn't even have to describe it this way. You'd just be like, just trust me. I'm going to take care of things. Go yeah. But like to have Paul write in this way, I think it's hard not to get fired up. Even if you've not been in any kind of like combat before, because you recognize that there is like, we've been saying all along in this episode, like a great battle that we are fighting. Like it feels like there is a war that's going on. And wouldn't it be nice to have the right kind of equipment to engage in that and not just to kind of like be holed up in some kind of cave and try to make sure that you're mostly protected, but like, wouldn't it be better to go on the offensive with a kind of righteous power and truth under which everybody is yeah. subdued, under which nothing can stand, under which like the darkness is dispelled and under which people come into a glorious kingdom and are rescued from their state of POWs, which we all once were. So it's just amazing that Paul yeah, kind of articulates all this defensive stuff and then says, there's some good stuff you have as well. You have the sword of the spirit. So I guess we need to talk about, because you brought this up. It's good. You just beat me to it. Like we often talk about the sword of the spirit and the word of God coming together. So like, how do we bring all that together in this particular passage? Just like Paul is talking about this sword. Yeah. I mean, maybe a different way to get at your question is, is how do we actually make use of the word of God? Right. Because Paul is giving us this analogy that the sword, the sword of the the sword of the spirit here is the word of God, and we use this sword right. of the spirit. Um, you know, we're going to get into it next week. I, I actually find that a lot of sermon series or or discussions of the armor of God stop at verse seventeen, but of course, Paul doesn't stop at verse seventeen. So we're going to keep going in this sort of like sequence here to talk about like all right. Paul has given us this grand analogy and metaphor of of the Christian's um, equipment. Now we're going to go into like, how do we actually use that equipment, which the the spoiler alert is we use it by means of prayer and supplication for all the saints. Yeah, right. But the sword of the spirit is one of those things where like, we really have to, um, maybe let me tell this quick story real quick, because I think it, it illustrates the point a little bit. So I have this really distinct memory, and I was actually thinking about this the other day, and I'm not sure why. I had this friend in high school named Theo, and we both took martial arts classes together. And I remember we were at youth group. This is such a dumb story. We were at youth group, and I was like, we were sort of like lightly sparring. I mean, you took, you were, I think you took Taekwondo, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. So like we were kind of sparring and just sort of like goofing around. And I was talking to him about how, like, if I, like, kind of continually come in at him, that, like, there's nothing he can do about it. And he sort of, like, took a step back and just landed this, like, sidekick square into the middle of my chest. And he literally <laughs> kicked me over a table in the middle of, of youth group. My word. Yeah, it was, like, not a hard kick, but it was enough to just, like, knock me over a table. And it, it was sort of, like, emphasized the point that, like, really the best defense is actually a good offense. Like I was coming at him and I was, I was, you know, throwing like light punches and sort of like continually coming at him. And the way to defend himself was not to try to block all of these incoming attacks. It was to just place a good sidekick in the middle of my chest and knock me away from himself. And I think that's really where the Christian needs to, to understand what's going on here. What Paul is giving us in terms of imagery here is that all of this armor is good and necessary, but if all we're ever doing is defending from the attacks of the devil, 
then we actually are, are not really actually accomplishing what it is that God has for us. And so he gives us the word of God um, because his, his intention and aim for the Christian is not merely for us to not, not fall prey to the devil, right? We've talked about this, that this is about gaining ground. This is about setting captives free. This is about conquering territory. This is about retrieving a fallen lost world from the devil. And although this is God's work, he does it through us oftentimes. Yeah. So I think to, to sort of like maybe answer your question or to answer the, the topic in a roundabout way is to talk about like some of the practical things we do with the word of God. Um, because I think we oftentimes as Protestant and Reformed Christians, we give lip service to the centrality and the importance of the scriptures. But I'm not sure that we always practically live out and play out that importance in the way that we handle and the way we approach and the way that we um, appropriate the scriptures. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. I, th I think it's a struggle for us because so part of that, I think quite honestly, you know, I talked about this before is our contemporary context. I'm sure every generation says that, but we're so inundated with the scriptures, like in almost every form. Yeah. And then we're inundated with like ways in which to process it. Like there's a right way and you need to use this particular method of underlining or studying. And, and I'm not trying to put those down. I'm, I'm just saying that there could become this pressure where it's like, well, if you don't have a, this particular kind of quiet time or you don't have this devotional book or this kind of resource, you don't do it this kind of way, that somehow you're missing out. You're not doing it right. You're doing it the wrong way and you should feel guilty about that. And we look back in history and say, well, how did all of these generations of the people of God before us rightly use this word of yeah. God? What was it that they undertook in their daily practice that would make them, quote unquote, effective in this battle against the enemy? And I think where we must land, like necessarily by study or exegesis or practicality or any other method, is that it started with prayer and supplication. Yeah. That it started with processing the scriptures, especially the heard word of God together with the community of God on a regular recurrent basis, and then to pray and have a deep relationship with God that was manifest in constant communication with him, whereby that communication was actually in many ways, the meditation of the truths, which you heard and praying them back to God, asking him to deliver on the promises that you heard made manifest in the midst of the congregation of the people of God. And I think we're after, for all kinds of things, but especially this, like quick fixes in our day and age. Like, no, 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 tell me the book. What's like the really good book that's been written recently about like how to pray better, how to study the word of God better, or like what this passage means or how to process what Jesus says. Like that may in fact be helpful, but it's possible that the hard work is really in the meditating, in the work of prayer, in the work of communing with God, in the way that he sets forward, not in the way that's just expedient or consistent or convenient with our times. So I think almost like the prevalence, the prevalence of the scriptures has made it even more difficult or more easy, maybe say, because it's so ubiquitous, just think it commonplace. And therefore, because it's commonplace, we don't really process and metabolize or meditate on it in the way that we ought. Yeah. Yeah, I, actually, I think you bring up a good point that um, I, I was not really thinking of, but I, I think it's a good good thing for us to explore a little bit, is in our current modern context, we often, we often think about like, how do we make use of the scripture 
we think about that in terms of like, how do we appropriate the scripture as individuals? Yeah. And the reality is that, um, this is a whole different direction than I thought we were going to end up going, which is fine is the reality is that God has placed you in a particular local congregation and that local congregation has a particular pastor. And if we believe what the word of God says, that pastor is a gift from God to the church, both to the church, capital C church, but also to the local church, to the particular congregation that that pastor has been um, been gifted to. And that pastor preaches every single week. And so this might feel a little bit, um, I don't know, this might feel a little bit weird for people to think about and to, to process but the the externalization and the sort of like taking it out of your own hands that is the local church sermon right you you don't choose generally speaking you as an individual christian don't choose what your pastor is preaching about this next sunday right that's not up to you you don't have a lot of say in it some churches do like um surveys like what do you want to do next and that's fine but in general, like you're not picking the text for the sermon next week. That actually might be a good thing because now the Holy Spirit is picking through the uh, through the man he has placed in your local congregation. He's picking what you need to hear, right? So we could talk about, and we, we, we should at some point, and we have in the past, we can talk about like ways to study the scripture and we've emphasized how important memorization is. And we've talked about how, how valuable although I wouldn't say it's mandatory, but how valuable it is for Christians to spend uh, a significant, substantial amount of time reading the scriptures on their own each day. We can talk about all of that. But at the end of the day, where God has selected and ordained you to be a part of the word, in terms of like a part of the word being applied to you, is almost entirely outside of your control, apart from the fact that you show up on Sunday. In a lot of ways, that's the way we take up the sword of the Spirit, is by the faithful attendance to the means of grace on the Lord's Day and trusting the Lord to bring to you, through your pastor, what it is he has for you from the Word of God. And this is most Christians throughout history, one, were not literate and could not read the Bible on their own, and two, did not have a copy of the Bible to read on their own. And so the preached word, the the um, spoken and the read word of God, we've talked about this when we were going through the systematic theology series, is that the actual like reading of the word of God on the Lord's day, apart from the sermon, that is actually super valuable to Christians. And we often underemphasize it. And I wonder sometimes if we think about the sword of the spirit being the word of God, we over-focus on what it is that we are bringing to the table, and we underemphasize. maybe this just came to me, maybe this is why Paul emphasizes that this is the sword of the Spirit right. rather than the right. sword of the Christian, right? Exactly. It's not, it's not my sword that I'm taking exactly. up. It's the sword of the Spirit because he is the one that applies the Scriptures to me, and through the way that the church functions, he's the one that's selecting which scriptures I'm exposed to regularly and are explicated to me regularly by the ordained man in my life who is who is appointed and gifted to me by God to bring that word to me. Yeah, I'm totally with you. I think again, that's there's a sense that we want a weapon that is 
fashioned by some transcendent force and that carries with it all the power of that force, which is outside ourselves. Right. Which is like so many, I'm out of my depth here, but like so many like superhero stories, isn't it? <laughs> like the power comes, it's embedded yeah. in an object, but the object itself is like outside. In fact, again, we, I never planned for any of this, but it just so happens at our own church today, I saw, I got to, to be with some people that I hadn't seen in like 15 years. That's how old I am now where you can say things like that. Everybody <laughs> will get there. I hadn't seen this person and his wife in 15 years. And uh, he was visiting and it was just like one of those serendipitous things where we were like, oh my word, how are you? And so we were talking, my wife and I and his wife after the service. And he had recently, he's a filmmaker, as uh, a very dear brother, just an incredibly creative mind. And uh, he was in a boot on one of those like knee scooters. You ever see yeah. those things where you're like flying around because you hurt yourself. So I was like, what did you do? And I was like, please tell me this is a good story because he's got this bright red scooter. And he's like, well, we were making a film in Madagascar and who isn't. And so he was like, <laughs> I just, I just fell in a hole and uh, I did something immediately to my leg. Like uh, he's like, I realized something was horribly wrong, but he was like, we were in Madagascar. So he's like, I went to the hospital and they were basically like, yes, something is wrong with this leg, but we don't have anything else to really tell you what it is. So he had all this photo shoot left. And so he said to his handler who was with him, um, is there any way I can get like a walking stick? And she was like, we have walking sticks. So like they went to this, I don't know, like this marketplace and this gentleman who is like an expert carver came forward with like these six different walking sticks. And he said he was just immediately drawn in this one. that's like gnarly, had like amazing carvings in it. And it was just like so ornately done and artistic. And of course him himself being an artist, it just really appealed to him. It resonated immediately with him. So he said, I'll take this one. And he said the handler who was a woman, uh, like essentially an, the equivalent of like a Rhodes scholar of Africa. Uh, I forget the designation that he mentioned, but an incredibly learned woman said, you have chosen exceptionally well because this stick is made of a particular type of wood. It's from a tree that only grows in Madagascar. And in addition to that, it's filled with great power. And in fact, what you want to do is, is place it when you're not using it on the northeast side of your home because that will allow it to recharge. And he was just like, I'm sorry. And at first he thought they were just messing with him. And this woman who's highly was like, no, 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 this, this is the truth. So he was like, okay. So the next day he has this stick, he's hobbling around and there's an agricultural representative who is helping with this particular story, a, a man who has several degrees. And he says, where did you get this stick? And so I just purchased it. Obviously something's jacked up with my leg. I'm using it to walk around. And he said, you made an excellent choice because again, it went through the same thing. This is a powerful stick. It has an amazing kind of force. And he said, in fact, it's so powerful that if you encounter a witch, not only will you be able to beat the witch away with this stick, but this stick will absorb and steal all of that witch's power. And he was like, okay. And then of course came the final admonition. When you take it home and you're not using it, make sure that you put it on the Northeast part of your home. And so he was just saying this because it was like incredible that for all these learned people, yeah. what they needed, what they wanted was this, some kind of tool that had this transcendent power. And, you know, we joked about the fact that there's probably many different, oh man, this might get like, this might trigger some people. I'm just gonna say it this way. There might be there probably many kinds of sticks would help you beat off a witch, but apparently this stick would not only beat off the witch, but absorb and take the power. Yeah, you definitely want to absorb her power with the stick. 
Yeah. I mean, so all that to say, like, maybe we look at this and we're like, yeah, I mean, this makes sense. Sort of the spirit. Yes. Transcendent power. Like it's still, but on almost maybe every corner of the world, there are people looking, longing for the kind of weapon that will allow them to assault the enemy. And that the weapon itself is imbued with a kind of power that's outside of themselves. So I'm with you. Like of all the things that Paul could choose, does it not make the most sense? In fact, they saying to your point, this weapon that you pick up, is not the one that you've like fashioned for yourself. And what I'm kind of saying, I guess, is, is it possible sometimes, not everybody, sometimes I'm, I'm talking to myself, that what we do with the word of God is we fashion it like a weapon either in our own image or we fashion it like a weapon that we have created yeah. by way of like some kind of pattern where like, well, I've, I've read it every day. So I must be well equipped as a Christian or, you know, I've gone through the motions or like I feel compelled to have devos, you know, all those things can be fine. But if we lose our way in that, then sometimes it's like we're trying to put the metal over the anvil and to shape the sword and to sharpen its edge. We don't need to do any of that nonsense because it's the spirit that does that. And if the spirit is the one, if the spirit, so to speak, is the blacksmith that is creating and fashioning this weapon, making it effective, efficacious for fighting, always keeping the edge like razor sharp, then is it possible that we must comply or should comply with the instruction that we receive for how to wield the weapon. And that instruction, to your point, is predominantly about hearing the preaching of the yeah. word on the Lord's day, about meditating it on it day and night, especially through prayer, yeah. and applying it unto our lives for wisdom. And that we can sometimes get twisted and think, I've got a really good Bible reading plan, which is not bad. I've got a really you know, strong, like Bible reading ethic. I read the Bible twice or three times uh, a year, which is fine. But if we lose ourselves in the fact that the spirit does this and that he provides specific instruction to us, then I think it's possible that like we might have the most perfect weapon, but we, we don't know anything to, to do with it. Uh, you know, the last thing I'll say, cause you've told us so many excellent stories. It's the last time I was at a gun range. It was a public, like a uh, public land uh, gun range. And it was a friend of mine, good friend of mine who wanted to who was, who was shocked that I'd never shot a handgun before. And so uh, he himself is in the military. He's excellent with weapons, super responsible. This is the kind of dude that you'd want training you on how to use a weapon. And so he trained me. We went out to the range. It was quiet. Nobody was there. And I'm trying to use this uh, to shoot this gun. And I know like people are probably like screaming at their devices like, what gun was it? I can't even remember because I know nothing about weapons. But it was a powerful gun. It had a pretty significant kickback. I remember I shot it a couple times and when the gun, like when it recoiled, I caught like the webbing of my hand in it and it hurt so bad, but I was doing so poorly at this that I remember he came up behind me and skilled me like he, <laughs> yeah, like his arms and hands over mine. And he's like, okay, here's how you do this properly. Like, here's how you stand with your feet. Here's how you release the trigger. Here's how you make sure that you know you're using it properly. Here's how you make this thing essentially efficacious. And we we released a couple of rounds. And then I looked over to my right and there were these two young guys just watching us. <laughs> you mean like uh, like if, if you were a girl, this would have been like a pickup line kind of a situation? <laughs> yes. It was exactly that. And, and it did become in a strange way severely and that's where we're going to use intimate in a weird way um but my point is that what i needed at that time was not like more of me to try yeah. to wield this thing what i needed was somebody outside of myself who was the actual one that could provide the instruction and so to your point in my long-winded explanation here i get you know let's do what god says that we ought to do with his word 
I'm sorry. I just can't get over this image of this guy, like helping you shoot this gun. I have this image in my head of him, like taking you mini golfing next and helping you putt. I don't know. It's it's if that's what you're imagining, then you are a hundred percent accurate because <laughs> that's how it was. And again, you're, you're fine. I think we had, we had to hear, I mean, again, this was, this, this guy is just fantastic. I think, uh, I would highly recommend Ben. I can re- refer him to anybody who wants to learn <laughs> almost any kind of weapon. He's like an expert markmanship. Like he's, He's a markman. He's trained or classified. I, I don't know what the proper term is. Please forgive me. Um, but he's amazing. And so, like, you know, we got the ear protection on. We're both firing off these rounds. None of us knew that somebody else had arrived. So, like, we both had this moment where we just silently looked over, like, after that we felt this presence. And there's these two guys just, just right there. Just watching like, you. <laughs> yeah, just watching us. And I think even they were like, this seems super awkward. So, you know, uh, that's the last wow. time I, I shot a handgun. But I've it's never good. shot a handgun. I don't know if I don't know if that surprises people or not, but I've never shot a handgun. No. Yeah. I don't know where to go from this, to be honest with you, Jesse. I think uh, like, where we go is that I've got somebody that can help you, and he'll come right up behind you and give you the proper form. <laughs> and uh, the thing is, I feel like I I know something about it now. Like I, I mean, if somebody handed one to me, I would still know what to do with it. But I I know more than I did before. So um, the thing is. We talk about a lot of strange things in the show. Hopefully, this will get a lot of great response. And if you're looking for a place to see what kind of response it gets, the best place is probably going to our Telegram chat. Sure. Telegram is just like a messaging app. If you go to t.me backslash or from Brotherhood, that will set you up with the link so you can just jump into this group and see all the topics. I can only imagine this will come up. I did want to point out, like as we close, that in the previous episode, I spoke quite a bit about Neko Wafers. And there was yeah. a quote outpouring about Neko wafers. Somebody sent an email to us personally about Neko wafers. I appreciate that. I saw that email, brother, and I appreciate that. I want to just follow up and say that I was gifted some Neko wafers oh, by man. a colleague. I did eat them. Uh, I did eat them, all of them, yes. And I will say that I was pleasantly surprised. I think maybe I had judged them a little bit too prematurely. But also, I like, uh, let's finish on one at least more polarizing thing. I like um, like anise a lot. I like black licorice. Totally down with it. That did, I think, also come up in the chat. Um, are, wait, are you black licorice? I, forget. I do like black licorice, yes. Yeah, pro black licorice. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. I, yeah, I don't so, know where they go with that. No, I think where everybody goes, if you're feeling it's awkward, is you find a good friend who knows how to operate a firearm. You <laughs> and you share some black licorice. You get some Necco wafers. And you do one of two things with those Necco wafers. Either you try them or you shoot them. If you don't like them, then that's a good way to dispose of them. But make sure you do it in a very safe manner, in a controlled environment. Wear some ear protection. Again, get somebody who can come up behind you, snuggle you up and say, this is the way to shoot this gun. I have to admit, I'm completely lost right now about where this episode has gone. (laughs) I don't know what's coming next and I don't know how we got to where we are. And I think probably the best thing to do is just to land the plane and we'll see what happens next week. And Jesse, until next week. Oh, wow. We are really just ending it here. <laughs> we don't have to. I just, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm very lost right now. This is good. I did have a sense that we might bring it back to a spiritual principle, but you know, sometimes <laughs> it's better just to let all of that hang out there. So I'm just going to follow suit with what you said. Listen, Everybody, come hang out with us in the Telegram chat because we'll probably be continuing this conversation there. And until you do that or until you hear from us again, 
let's honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. What if